0: Continuance, a podcast of the CSU Poetry Center. I'm Zach Peckham.
1: I'm Hilary Plum.
0: And we're here to talk about our next episode that we recorded of this podcast with three other people (laughs) who are great.
1: So in this episode, we talked to Peter Demick, Eugene Lim, and Ian Dreiblatt. Um And the reason we got all of them together is because combinations of those three or four people uh, used to do a bunch of panels at the left forum in the times before the pandemic. Um, uh, with those, me, Hillary. Yeah, those four
0: <laughs> being you and those three. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. <laughs> or five. Is that five people? No, Wait. four people. How okay.
0: Many? <laughs> there are too many people. <laughs>
1: Um, and we talk, we introduce everyone in the episode itself. Um, but we can just quickly say that all of those three um, are experimental writers of poetry and prose, uh, and and all of them have worked in independent and small press publishing for quite some time as writer or as editors, publicists, librarians, um, uh, managing editors in a bunch of different capacities. And we'll get in, we get into that into that in the episode itself. Would, um,
0: would you call them luminaries? I would. I found them luminous.
1: Um, I I find them three of the most exciting, inspiring people to talk to about. Like, yeah. <laughs> book culture, the future, uh, writing, publishing, all of these things, um, which is one reason I wanted to get everybody into a room. Um, it
0: was such a powerful room. Yeah. I, I don't know. I I I don't talk a lot in the episode because I'm just sort of I feel I feel sort of dumbfounded by just the the sheer the sheer power <laughs> of of uh everyone's presence and then you know to say nothing of the, the great things being said but i talk a little bit with it, which is enough that's fine but yeah it's it's a great it's a great zoom call it's also it's like it goes deep yeah like it's a we really go for it or there's, they, a, lo- we there's a long
1: enough? session on the apocalypse <laughs> and the end of civilization yeah so be ready we yeah. also think you should listen in the dark because it was very late and dark when we recorded it. Yep, and, and that it'll hold up
0: <laughs> far into the night. And that I think that comes across, and that it'll it'll make the most sense in that context. I'm and and I liked that the like apocalypse thinking comes up in relation to the a question about continuance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which. We won't spoil it, but I just I like that I like the response to that question a whole lot, even if it scares me. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like it. So yeah, listen in the dark where it's it's scary. Um, but we have, you know, in the spirit of our index, we have uh, we have terms right. We have more entries to the index. Only only two this time.
1: We have yeah, just two terms: one kind of political and one kind of aesthetic. Um, and the first one is surveillance capitalism, which. Um, You know some folks may have spent a lot of time with that term but I thought I'd introduce it from the book The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff from 2019 which is was my own kind of I think I actually first sort of encountered that term through Peter Demick's writing um, and then through his kind of engagement with and recommendation of this book um, and uh, in the Episode itself, I kind of briefly misspeak um, and use the <laughs> use the <a> phrase. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in more more ways than one. But in in relation to this term, I sort of you know describe people as selling their attention right online. Um, when in fact, as in the definition I'm about to read, you know, it, it's better to think of us not as like the owners of the mine of, of attention, but as the raw material itself, right? That are that we are the raw material being mined. So. Um, and uh, I'll just read this. This, is a, this definition appears um, in the kind of, like, uh, front matter of this very large book. Um, uh, surveillance capitalism. And again, this is Shoshana Zuboff, not me. One, a new economic order that claims human experience as free raw material for hidden commercial practices of extraction, prediction, and sales. Two parasitic economic logic in which the production of goods and services is subordinated to a new global architecture of behavioral modification. Three, a rogue mutation of capitalism marked by concentrations of wealth, knowledge, and power unprecedented in human history. Four, they keep escalating, by the way, the foundational framework of our surveillance economy. Five, as significant a threat to human nature in the 21st century as industrial capitalism was to the natural world in the 19th and 20th. six, the origin of a new instrumentarian power that asserts dominance over society and presents startling challenges to market democracy. Seven, a movement that aims to impose a new collective order based on total certainty. Eight, an expropriation of critical human rights that is best understood as a coup from above. An overthrow of the people's sovereignty. That's the end of our definition. <laughs> um, and this comes into the conversation in a few ways, but one way I was thinking about um, just rereading it was at some point in our discussion, I kind of muse about the invisibility um, of this, the way that this power is wielded, um, or ways that it feels like the cost of this kind of surveillance and this kind of data mining is often seems as though it's deferred or it's a harm that might come to occur somehow in the future. Um, Even though, you know, we sort of encounter eerie manifestations of it all the time, targeted ads, things like that, ways that we know we're being surveilled, but they don't seem to have had a cost yet. Um, Whereas, you know, her argument is that the behavior modification, right, the interventions Mm -hmm. into people's behavior are already happening. um, And one reason that they are um you know that our language is so strong in this definition and that they are such a threat to democracy and to people's sovereignty is because they are invisible um, and our behavior is being modified without our um, real awareness
0: yeah and it's that um it's the it's the weird like sleight of hand that creates the illusion of choice when like you know what yeah. I mean like yeah, the, yeah. Uh, these are the search results this is mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. or like you know these are the, uh, these are the four possible answers on the multiple choice you know know, it's that like strange um like deep level of design that uh I don't know that's what this sort of like theory behind how this gets like enacted is what creeps me out yeah the most
1: yeah and a way that with in terms of reading it can feel like like we're used to reading as kind of an act of choice or agency but in this way like are we really like choosing to read social media you know like are we choosing to scroll like Uh (laughs) that's not really how it works and we're also like have of course so little agency about then what text we're presented with and how our of course how the algorithm is working for us but also just like the time that we spend there Mm -hmm. um and how that time modifies our behavior right Um, and changes our understanding in ways that we are not going to have a lot of sort of Awareness or metacognition around,
0: yeah, and changes our like just changes our attention, right? Yeah, which is what. Just going back to like some of our original like ideas or questions for this podcast, right? Like thinking about attention. Yeah. <laughs> um.
1: <clears throat> so we'll hear in the conversation Peter Dimick talking a, a, a fair amount about sort of the difference between reading in the era of surveillance capitalism and reading in a more. Um, Traditional and veering toward the utopian sense of like what the the book was and could offer, the kind of technology the book is, and the privacy of, you know, the book is this affordable, you know, reproducible, easily exchanged, pretty durable um, technology that people interacted with in their private time that was available to them um, at, you know, know, middle class and then expanding out from that sense when they'd purchased that time with their labor, right? So, which yeah. Which
0: is awesome. I love that. I, I just to. Well, I guess we'll move on from it before and just let, like, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Explain we'll it. let but, him do it. Yeah. But we're, all, we're just, like, in awe of it, right? And I, I feel especially uh, interested in, or I was, like, surprised by it and then really interested in his, like, his durability argument, mm-hmm. you know, which we often think about books as the complete opposite. Paper is this, whatever, fragile. It's fragile or it's garbage or it's, or it's nothing, right? Um, and yeah, to think of the book as durable is actually like really, I felt like really smart.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, much more so than the web as you know, many of us who work in editing experience, Mm -hmm. like actually so many of the links that people compile in a book length project, something like that, they're not Mm -hmm. there um, a short while later. Oh yeah. Right. They're broken. They're gone. Mm -hmm. Like you can maybe still find that thing, but it's also like, it's not clear if it's been updated or corrected always. Like there, it's a, very unstable, um, (laughs) like textual archive. It's not even, it's not even really an archive. Like, um, so in contrast to that, the book, yeah, has a remarkable kind of durability as a a source of text. Yeah. Yeah, Like
0: as a record. Yeah. Well, great. And then our other, our other term is Ulipo? Ulipo. 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 Send us emails if we're pronouncing things <laughs> wrong, please. Uh, and there's there's a convenient definition of this available on the Poetry Foundation website. Uh, I don't want to steal your joke. Do it. But ulipo pofo pofo ulipo ergo is an acronym for now French words that I I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'll do it wrong, but um, the workshop for potential literature, uh, which is a group of writers and mathematicians, and I'm just reading off the uh, I'm reading off POFO right now, just you know to be to be true true transparent. Uh, a group of writers and mathematicians formed in France in 1960 by poet Raymond Q U E N E A U and a math a, a math man. Um, <laughs> so uh, what's important to know about this uh, aesthetically is that unlike the dada and surrealist movements ulipo again i'm still quoting rejects spontaneous chance and the subconscious as sources of literary activity instead the group emphasizes systematic self-restricting means of making texts for example the technique known as n plus seven replaces every noun in an existing text with the noun that follows seven entries after it in the dictionary. There are notable members of this group, like Italo Calvino, who this was just revealed to me. I didn't realize that. And some other boys.
1: Yeah. That M- mostly, you... boys. Yeah. mostly boys. It's mostly boys.
0: We had the we had a question of whether this was for boys.
1: <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but the, but Anne Gereta, uh who's a woman writer, who's a member of the Ulipo, a bunch of her books have come out in English in the past few years um, mm-hmm. in translation from French. Yeah.
0: And this is a movement, too, that like, still has some holds, right? Like, yes. Still has some influence. Um, you were you're mentioning someone else who's maybe more recent.
1: I think I was mentioning Harry Matthews. Um, yeah. But yeah. for me, I guess, I mostly encounter... I haven't read a terrible amount a terribly large amount a terrible <laughs> a terrible amount, amount. i haven't a, read that much of it i mostly have encountered them through their influence on kind of experimental american um yeah. literature um, cool. and through kind of writers closer maybe to my own generation who um who are influenced by them i, I know that uh you know the george Perec novel um avoid or the void which is lipogrammatic and avoids the letter e um so yeah. things like that like a, a procedural um yeah. approach to to writing
0: and like very, uh, just very process focused, which I that I, I feel very interested in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure.
1: Um, I think, I guess we can say they've been very very influential. Yeah, it's an important movement. Some of you probably know a lot about them, and I, I'm sorry that you had to listen to this several minute <laughs>
0: discussion. Yeah. L- Listeners read off a website. <laughs> yeah, like idiots. Um, but it comes up does um. Is it, does Ian mention it first, or I think maybe the,
1: Eugene does? Eugene does. Okay, yeah.
0: cool. And they get they get into it. I mean, they know more than us. So, That's true.
1: Which yeah. is
0: which is kind of the thesis of this entire podcast. Yeah, they know more than us. <laughs> okay, great.
1: We're here to introduce you to the introduction. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. What about how do you begin? Do you really want to begin at the beginning? We're giving we're giving you a suggestion <laughs> of where. Where to begin? Um, okay, well, maybe we should just go talk to them. Let's do it. Okay, here we go.
1: Hello, this is Hillary. I'm here with Zach Peckham. Hi. And Peter demick the writer and editor, formerly at Random House, and a senior executive editor for for history and political science at Columbia University Press who is the author most recently of the novel Daybook from Sheep Meadow, The Notebooks of Talis Martinson, out on the independent press, Deep Vellum.
2: Hi, Hilary. Thank you.
1: Uh, also here is Eugene Lim, writer, editor and publisher of, Lips- of Ellipsis Press, librarian, author most recently of the novel Search History, out on the independent press, Coffeehouse.
3: Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me.
1: And Ian Dryblatt, poet, translator, currently the social media manager at Grove Atlantic and author most recently of the Book of poems Forget Thee, out on Ugly Deckling Press.
4: Hi, thank you, this is fun.
1: Thank you all so much for being here. Um, This podcast conversation is our first Zoom conversation, but a follow-up to a number of uh, panels, conversations chats we've had over the years, especially at the Left Forum, where combinations of this group of people met a number of times over the years. And I'm just gonna share the names of some of the panels that we were on together over the years. And if y'all haven't, <laughs> despite the um, embarrassment, some of my panelists are, the panelists <laughs> are exhibiting. Um, if y'all haven't gone to the Left Forum, um, you're missing out. I hope to be there again. Uh, it was often at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. We often got some Greek food afterward. um, Had some good conversations about the JFK assassination, probably. (laughs) Maybe World Trade Center (laughs) 7, depending on the year. Um, So we started meeting in 2014 um, with a panel. And I'm going to read the names of these panels because I think they show a sort of progression of the subjects that we were thinking about over this time. And the first one in 2014 was called Toward a New Collegium envisioning the politics and poetics of a radical collective for writers and readers. And then in 2016, the case for publishing cooperatives, alternative publishing in the age of Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. In 2017, experimental writing, experimental publishing. And in 2018, experimental experimental literature and the creation of non-monetized communicative spaces. And then the last one we did before the pandemic experimental literature and the representation of political crisis. So I thought I'd follow up on everything <laughs> that we talked about um, in those June days um, of past years. And I have uh, just kind of four big questions for us, which are each just sort of a keyword um, that I took from those conversations and from some of our emails um before this uh before we we met today um and the first one is just i kind of wanted to hear from you all about the state of publishing right now um post pandemic but we'll put post in quotes cuz it doesn't really feel like we are post pandemic um but we're in whatever state of it uh this will prove to be and maybe i'll just i'll throw some of my own kind of thoughts and struggles of the moment out there um, just as jumping off points um, I've been thinking as ever about the relationship between corporate publishing and the independence um, and, and the small presses that uh, where I work and where we all um, publish our work. Um, in particular, in the context of the further rise of Amazon that the pandemic seemed to kind of so deeply solidify uh, its penetration into every aspect of, of American life. Um, we just saw the sort of Department of Justice it's antitrust action against the merger of two of the big fives, right? Um, it sort of shut down the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, um, which was felt kind of well. I'm curious how everyone <laughs> felt about it. it. Felt like interesting. It felt a little bit hopeful, but also so belated um, because that kind of action, you know, this process of corporate consolidation has been going on for so long um, that to have to prove that it wasn't inevitable was sort of disorienting. Um, We could talk about the supply chain, um, which, you know, and and the sort of delays that we're seeing in publishing and and what it starts to feel like, you know, the rise of more accessible digital technology allowed for this proliferation of small presses. that started about 20 years ago. I'm curious um, where things will go now that it seems like printing and other aspects of publishing are slowing down again. For a while when printing slowed down, I was like, our, I didn't hit us at our at our small press. I was like, "Oh, we're too small. It doesn't matter for us. We can just slip through." And then it totally, completely mattered. <laughs> Everything completely slowed down. Um, I'm thinking about the new wave of labor activism that we've seen um, right now as we're recording this. I think Harper Collins is still on strike. Um, we've seen some other kind of very exciting waves of uh strike action and activism in higher ed in other realms obviously some unionization efforts at amazon um and i'm thinking about just like we're talking on zoom you know this has become part of our lives in the last few years and so many of our conversations in the years before that were about kind of the age of surveillance capitalism um and the you know the monetization of attention um and the ways that Privacy and relationships with books and with language with people were invaded and eroded um, by you know these forms of technology um, and entities and agents of of surveillance capitalism Um, and you know I thought about it for a brief moment right and as everything hopped onto Zoom during lockdown. And I thought, oh, all of our students' data is now, Zoom can just feast on it, right? All of it, suddenly this wave of, of new fuel to that fire. Um, and Peter, you you kind of beautifully said an email um, a few days ago, just talking about an experience of internal colonization that you, that you feel yourself increasingly experiencing from all the media machines. Um, and I thought that was, a a very striking way to put it Um, in the last few days or week or whatever it was, we've also seen the closure of some, like of the large, what I think of as the larger independent entities in our realm of publishing Astra, which had kind of an exciting new magazine, just shut down book forum, just closed today. Um, Those, at least for me were some of the bigger places that I ever published, you know? So, and so I find myself kind of turning again to small presses and their sense of possibility and freedom, um, even as they're they're very thoroughly marginalized in, in the publishing market. So those are a little pile of my own thoughts um, about the state of publishing right now.
2: What's striking to me about, and I'm retired from publishing, I worked for 17 years at Random House and then 10 years at Columbia University Press as a history editor. Anyway, um, what's striking to me is that there's a feeling of desperation that seems to me to increase that I'm further away from publishing, and my own personal experience is how separate my value—I value reading so so much so highly—and that I don't care about books anymore. That it's funny that the circulation of books as objects in the world, and I think the the business is schizophrenic. That that reading and books have this tremendous authority, but what's broken apart is the circulation of these physical objects or even online sort of websites and the monetization that that's involved with and the dis- disconnection between that, um, that, that desperation about making money out of books and, and making the necessary corporate 10% or 7% and the and the continuing authority of writing and, being a writer or and reading, but I just realized that you know the way I phrase it to myself is I, I really don't care about books. I really care. I think we value reading much too low, lowly, and we don't value books. We don't value books as reading. I don't. We should stop valuing them as commodities and as content monetization. As content that is in the past that the market was a uh, was a form of circulation, a vehicle for circulation of. Thought and that thought was never thought to be monetized. I think it was always assumed that thought was outside of monetization, at least you know pre-pre computer. That and that now that we can monetize consciousness, that's what I think is new. And it it gives a sort of an added authority to reading and to literature. But it also literature I think is being absorbed by that by that all value is monetized. So how do we distinguish what we're doing as writers? from being how not to be caught up in this sw- in the in the frenzy of this kind of profit of profiting from content in the face and, and a diminishing amount of time in which there's no infinite future in which reading can keep going that is we've got 7 years left before the climate wrecks culture and so you know and so it seems to me there's a failure of culture and of, of institutions of cultural institutions that are not monetized and there's a failure of kind of personal ethics That somehow can be distinguished in a community of communication that's um that's not within a frame of monetization whether on on social media or on zoom or on on that we're all it's i mean we're all saturated with it and how do we distinguish and we yet we want we're yearning for this authority of non-monetized expressions of thought that somehow can be captured and kept and given to other people in a timeless in a timeless kind of, or what we used to think was a timeless kind of way. Anyway, I'm sorry to go on, but that's that's sort of the, and I just, I know you guys all work for a living, but I'm retired, so I, there's a different, I was just shocked at how long it took me to realize that instead of being a uh, an editor who had stopped being being able to do really what I needed to, that is, I sort of felt like I, it was a failure as a senior editor, and it took me years before I realized that that um, it wasn't books that mattered, it was reading that mattered, and that now I'm just intent on separating the two. And I think even independent presses are, they are presses and their books, and they are inevitably dealt, you know, in the middle of, of commodification and commercialization, but their yearning is to escape it. And I think that's the tension that is interesting to deal with as publishers. How do we actually accomplish that? And I don't think we, w- we yet recognize what that form will be like. We haven't found it yet, but I think if we think like that, there's a possibility of finding something some way of that I don't, I don't pretend I can imagine it, but I can I can sort of write about trying to imagine it. Thats what we're
3: <laughs> I was going to say, I have a, a reaction to the idea, Peter, uh, that, uh, and the, but I end up agreeing with you, but the the idea of um, it's uh, I value reading and not the book. And the the one thing I would say is that uh, the book as a commodified object might not be of um, ideal value or the highest value, but it is a technology. The sitting of there and reading in in that form of technology, and I don't want to particularly fetishize it, but it doesn't have all the distractions of yeah. the other ways that people read, and and the uh, so I was going to say. Up to, like, up to that point, I was with you entirely because the, the reading object, uh, the, the, op, the object, the book, the codex is, I think, uh, dying. I mean, we're watching it, its importance go away. I was at this, I was thinking about this one, uh, the two things that confirmed it for me that like, I don't know if this was the nail and coffin or maybe if these are two obvious things, but, but uh, I went to a uh, reading with the uh, writer Hua Su, who's, who has a new memoir out. Um, but he's a collector. He's a collector of things and he's a collector of records and at one point he turns to the, uh, turns to the audience and he goes, uh, Duke, am I the only one who collects things looking for a hand raise. And it was f- it was far less, it was a fewer number, a smaller number than I would have predicted. And it hit me that the fetish that maybe our generation had for records and, and books and how um, how entirely dissolved that is, or how entirely changed that is—I um, don't think I realize it. And I think it's hitting all the markets in, in a similar way. Um, and and the, the the idea of the the idea of the book is just it's just plummeted. I see it, you know, in my work as a uh, a librarian with 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 teenagers, even with um, a, ambitious, aggressive high school students. Uh, they, uh, the idea of there there is a romanticization or the uh, a nostalgia for that book technology, but it's also, um, it's 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 importance culturally to them is so far diminished. It's scary how precipitous that follows.
4: Mm-hmm. I I was gonna say uh, what you said was did This is not strictly well. It's related to books, but I um. I think I was the last person in in North America to get into Spotify. I've always, I'm I'm sitting right next to like a pile of CDs. I am a record CD, audio tape guy. And then I was like, I should just figure out what Spotify is. And it is sublime. I mean, it's so much better than I had imagined and also so much worse, but it really has almost all of the, you know, my weird like Soviet era Georgian garage rock is all there. It's full, you know, um I, I got very excited when I, I was like I can make all of my old mix CDs I can put them on playlists I can carry them on my phone. And I texted a friend and I was like Spotify is amazing it turns out and he wrote back I feel like you're telling me you just learned about pajamas. Like, yes, <laughs> but Spotify is great. Um obviously Spotify is not books but it it um it really not to like play old guy but it really made me reflect on the way in which i think if you grow up with that kind of availability and that is how you encounter the situation of access uh to art of whatever kind because of course it's you know i think for people who are more into tv shows or whatever it's very easy to download um or even just to stream legally you know my mind goes to piracy but a lot of it is legal now. I, it, it uh, why would you want a book? You know it it seem, must seem so quaint and cumbersome to to have these big uh, you know bed bug uh, edible sometimes smelly sometimes you know destructible they're kind of like odd you know I mean I feel like the the shift is in part in their origin they were so sturdy and stable they've become so uh, comparatively fragile but also what, what you were saying Eugene about um the decline of the book and the you said something in particular about uh how the book saves you from all of the ambient distractions but to me there's a totally contrary way that I think about um writing I think this in part is just reflects a, a difference between being more focused on poetry versus more focused on fiction maybe but you know to me in a lot of ways a book is a score for performance as it always has been and I in my own kind of thinking, I'm often caught up, not in the early days of the book, but in the days that long preceded the book in the early days of differentiating the use of language to make art, even as art had not yet really stabs at defining art, hadn't really been made yet. Um, and so I think about the poetry reading as a place where actually all, that is to me where the distractions don't exist. Cause when I'm reading, I picture myself on the train or or like grabbing 15 minutes when my kid is eating or something. Um Whereas when I, go to a reading, even if it's online, which is not preferable to me, you know, what I imagine is being immersed in the scene of art made out of language, whatever that scene may be. And I, you know, I, I don't, it's not exactly that I think of it as free of distractions, but I guess I think that there's always some, some signal to noise balance in any sensory experience. And to me, the, the experience of reading in person, um, just feels like a very primary one. And so it's not that this is not really to disagree with you because of course that is different, you know, it's not to say that those things can't be distractions if what you might remember less of what you encountered if you in that way, but it makes me, I think it makes me a little less reluctant to let the book go because I just think, well, that was one way, the kind of fleeting way of organizing, you know, it's like DVDs, because of the age I am, I think of DVDs as a major technology, but actually DVDs were popular for about eight years, you know, and I just think the book lasted more than eight years, but it might similarly be something that we can say, no, this was a useful boat to put six hours of talking into, but we have other boats now, we no longer need it.
3: I don't know, delete I that, think don't that was...
4: none of what I just said. Be in the
3: <laughs> I was gonna say, in the end, I think the situation is very dire for the book. I have great, but hopes, is that dire but... or is it just? No, no. no hold on. I, I was going to say I, I have, I have hopes, and I think things are going, things are going to turn right. But I just, I just want to just put asterisks, and I think it's remarkable that we have come from the beginning of this conversation to this, where we're like the book, yeah, you know, we'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be all right, because of the book, it, it, there, it, we might find another boat, but that was a beautiful boat. It's a really great boat. And the boat gives you something, um, at least in fiction and uh, I think in poetry too, a moment of reading, which is um, focused and the attention is, um, it's very analog and it's, you know, it's very analog and um, you can get absorbed into a flow state with it. Um, and it is possible. And that's, this is why I have hope that that act of read, and that's the act of reading that Peter's referring to. And that will be, will be um, recreated or, or will be translated into whatever the new format is. But it was still a really nice boat for a while that we had. That's all. I like
1: um, and it.
3: there, and there are repercussions, just like when we move from album culture to, to streaming culture, where the way we listen to music changes because the technology has changed. Um, and well, those are of good what... and bad. but-
4: Sorry, yeah, no, I meant to say that the Spotify thing is kind of bad, actually. You know, it does provide this incredible portable access to an incredibly huge, it's hard to find the stuff that's, there's a few things once in a while that I'm like, oh, Spotify doesn't have that, but they have a lot. But it does, even if you don't use the more algorithmic end of what it makes available, it totally reshuffles what you're doing and it changes, the relationship between music and time, the relationship between um one song and the next song, you know, especially if you if you like listening to I mean I feel like I mean I don't I don't mean to get bogged down at Spotify because I was trying to use it as a metaphor, but um I say it all in part to say that I, I agree with you that the boat was nice for us. I don't know if it was nice for everybody in the same way, but that also I wonder if or or part part of what what Peter's saying makes me think about is um that it's that you know the the technology shapes the experience of engagement and so that I, I think it's not it's not just a matter of like well let's refocus from the book to the act of reading but it's actually you know reading is i mean the book is the modality through which reading for a long time has been primarily articulated um And so, and I do feel like, you know, similarly to like what the, <laughs> I keep picking up other media, but I feel like similarly to what the Sopranos did to television and movies where suddenly it was no longer, you know, you could pick these very different things, but everything got kind of weird and mangled and mixed together. You know, I think now like the book is part of commodity culture in a way that it didn't used to be, even though it has always relied on its commodity status to become capable of distributing literary time. But I I think all of that stuff is kind of melting together. And so what we're doing when we're reading is feels to me much more like we're dipping into a, um, not a continuity in the sense that we're, our experiences are unified, much the opposite, but a continuity in the sense that there is a shared, amalgamable, if that's a word, a, a shared stream of data that we are constantly in and out of and always being monitored by and always interacting with our own state of being monitored by. And it, you know, literally controls the world in other, not in the US, but in other places, wars are fought for it, or or certainly will be or partly are, you know, like, it's just, it's huge. And we when we talk about its effect on the the bigger categories of daily life, like how our political system has completely collapsed and nobody can agree on whether or not like one of the two major parties is just nazism and the other of the two major parties is just satanic pedophilia or whatever you know like these things i don't mean to say like it's all because people don't read as many books and they're reading articles but i do think um you know there there is a i do feel like we see symptoms of the disintegration of the shapes in which uh, we have we we have grown accustomed to it, encountering yeah. that sort of time.
2: And it's funny. I, when hearing you speak, I was thinking of you know in ninth I think it's 1904. I don't. Uh, Proust wrote this introduction, which he talks about reading, and he called um, reading um, communication in the midst of solitude. Um, so that the act of reading is communication in the midst of solitude, and that 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 quality of that. I think that solitude was a new silence, was a kind of bourgeois silence of, of entitlement of a self that's protected from the forces of, of coercion because of the of the protection that the market has given the middle class. Or if you if you can support yourself through, anyway, if you can accumulate possessions or um, wealth, you are entitled to a kind of centrality of self and a and a. And a sovereignty and autonomy of solitude that you then can um, use from which to communicate with other solitudes or other equals or that, that that's a kind of enhancement both of the private person but also of the agency of that person to be remembered to be historicized to have effects on the world and that reading was a kind of the book was a form in which there was both community and this the solid the autonomous solitude of an individual had a social um Coherence and a permanence that it that had in no other form besides the book that it would be member that books would be reprinted that it and a book would last and that so that that it seems to me that that now that the present or like Hillary the title of the of the podcast the indexing continuance that the co- the, the question of the coherence of continuance is really much up for grabs that is there is not a a, a clarity about um, what and you know we all want narratives or we all want to say we have made a difference in a narr- and narrate it but we don't know how to narrate the lack of a future the lack of a failure of continuance so we can index things but we can't create and the, so the and the book traditionally i think was the anchor that I, by which a middle class culture at least as a model for universalism of some kind you know kind of kind of performed the idea of a social solitude that was liberatory that we don't that we don't we can't use the book quite to do that anymore, but that we still want to. Do, I at least still want to do that. You know that everyone's valuable and everyone's um, needs to talk to everybody else. That there needs to be a a form of communication and a form of autonomy and it, that go together in some way. Uh, and that the book kind of modeled that for a lo- for hundreds of years or for a lo- for what feels like a long time, at least since the eighteenth century. And the business that's what I mean. I mean, re- I mean. The hopefulness of publishing when I was not you know, an assistant public, there was a tremendous kind of hope in the future that it was, we were on the cutting edge that we were helping produce a future meaning for, for, and we, it was a game, but it was also the, that we were on the, we would be at the, at the presence of the, of the birth of new ideas or new cultures or new, new thought or new ways of living and that that feeling feels to me most authors, or most people I work with as authors don't don't feel don't to me don't feel feel themselves to be in that role
4: my you know my experience in in trade publishing uh, increasingly has been that there's just no no divide between entertainment and ideas or whatever not not to suggest some like pretentious you know high and low thing, but just that there are different modes and my experience is that there the 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 climate of production is to requires or is thought to require completely obliterating that that difference Mm -hmm. so that everything is is just a product. You know, if you worked for a think tank, great, does the think tank have a Twitter?
3: I was just gonna say, hasn't it always been thus for commercial fiction though? And the the reason that you get things through is because there was a brave soul here or there that defied things or I mean I think that it's true that probably historically there was a a gentleman's narrative to publishing. Uh, but um, but these days I think that uh, the the only thing that's holding up literature are the small presses and the independent presses in large part. Mm. When you get a novel through, you know, or a poetry book through in the in the in the in commercial in the within the commercial publishers, it's like go go lucky for them because the, somehow they want a golden ticket through. But you know, what does it mean? Really?
1: Can I ask you? I want to ask like a follow up that's about whether the boat is a mirror is what I was thinking. Um, which I feel like our conversations and, and Peter's writing also have, you know, helped me think a lot about, um, which is this question of like, okay, like if that private community community and solitude, the privacy of reading, um, is this, you know, space of collectivity and connection. Um, if it's a space that can provide some insight and witness and resistance to these other spaces of reading um, in which one is one thinks one is like listening to music or scrolling or like reading or whatever, but really, you know, you're, you're kind of selling your attention and that is what's happening. And we, I guess we think of that as like a trade-off, but we, but not really, we think it's not happening, right? We think that there's a time in which in the future in which it, might matter that it happened but that time is not yet now and because it's because of the way in which it's happening it's like always going to be invisible like we can't see the effects that it's having in a way um but that doesn't feel real that feels like the specter of possible future harm or change you know and that's why peter your phrase internal colonization seemed so
3: (laughs) right to me there was a dichotomy i heard on the radio uh I didn't listen to the whole interview, but Mary, Marianne Wolf, I think is her name. She's a, I don't know, she's a writer about, uh, she's a is writer it? of popular nonfiction about uh, the topic of reading, I think. Um, but she said something about um, there is, language is a naturally uh, occurring human skill, but reading is not. And reading is actually uh, composed of uh, um, you know several different complex mechanisms. it's not something that's central to like like a language skill is to to humanity. and reading is complicated and what we think of as reading prior to the internet was um, was a uh, was kind of a, a deeper uh, more absorbed form of reading and then there is this other thing that we're doing constantly, which is which is makes sense from uh, from uh, Neurological or biological perspective, which is skimming a lot of information constantly, skimming and you know transferring uh, our focus to different places and skimming and and trying to go through lots of and sift through lots of data fast, as opposed to reading one single mind for a long period of time. Right? Those are two different forms of reading, and they're both they both come under the rubric of the term reading, but are actually quite different right, activities.
2: And I think that I guess for me that's just a. Um, I feel like in the scanning or the skipping that coherence is delivered to you by the algorithms of the, of the logic of the companies, whereas that deep solitude is, is a kind of time in which the self has to generate coherence out of your own voice of all of all the words that you've internalized, you get to your coherence comes out of on the model kind of on the model of, of reading once it's there of how do I Beginnings, middles, and ends of stories, and how do I insert myself in that form of, as if that's coherence in language? How do I form that myself? I mean, anyway, that,
3: so that it's kind of a coherence uh, of of a mind, right? Because when you yeah. read a novel, you're reading another mind, and then you yeah. have that you know, maybe that metaphor, of the mirror that Hillary was bringing up is possible, because, or or you know, a, a telephone, a one-on-one conversation with another mind. But the thing that is that what you, you described as a coherence created by the algorithms is actually I think there's no coherence. There's just like right. it's mm-hmm. a it's the, you're diving is, into the land of data.
2: But there is a there is an organizing logic of maximizing return on investment, so that there's a, there's a structure underneath it that's not linguistic. I mean that's why it doesn't have to use language, but it is maximization of a profitable return against other forms of investment, not against other activities of survival.
4: But I and I, that is, you know, it's just a very um, unwholesome coherence. But that it's, I think we're maybe more coherent than we've ever been because instead of kind of being at the loose ends of of experience and encounter and trying to cultivate a self from it, instead, you know, like I, I slightly disagreed with what you said, Hillary, because I don't think that we are selling our attention. Our attention is being sold. We don't get the, you know, we're we are again, we're the ones and zeros being moved around. Mm-hmm. Um. The the capital flows between other parties, and we very rarely, you know, even those of us who are literally working in the book industry are very rarely party to the actual changing hands of the money, except in very limited uh, quantities. But I think that it, I think that part of the deep horror of it is the way in which it it is constructing for each of us and for all of us in our various collectivities, you know, a, a ghastly coher- a coherence that we probably want no part of, um, and that, as you say, we mostly don't perceive.
2: But I, I feel like paradoxically, it's also it's a it's a coherence that t- is very tolerant of discontinu. It teaches us how to live discontinu- discontinuity and disjunction, and that that coherence anyway that I just feel like that's made up of fragment. It's fragmentation and atomization, as a, as opposed to other forms of relatedness to other people. That's the, I just feel like it, it teaches us how to be happy, being entertained by discontinuities rather than by the work of Connection to other people. Mm-hmm. That you
4: know, as long as something is being accumulated somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. So as, as long as that is weighted so that things flow down those lines.
2: And and the accumulation is is and the way you judge it is by monetizing it. So it's the it's the monetization at the end of the day or the end of the quarter or at the end of the 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 corporate need of return on investment, not how much carbon gets spewed into the atmosphere as a result of this and in. in Path, you know, in a couple of years, in t- ten years, anyway. I mean, it is, it is the, it is the maximization principle of, 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 um, of monetization, not of value. That is, when monet, when all value is monetized, there's no way of standing outside it. That's what I guess. Publishing, I think, is, you know, finally trying to find a place outside of monetization to talk to each other. Maybe I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I think you're. I think your correction's right on. I mean, I think we're more oh, I the natural I resource. Mean. Yeah. That is that is being mined. Um I, I was I guess I was trying to think with the the boat that's a phone, that's a mirror of um you know, that like, is that mirror a place where we can see all of this happening? Um, But then, you know, if I say that that's what a book is for, well, people don't generally think that that's what a book is for. So, am I inventing some sort of esoteric idea of the book where it's this, you know, site of, um, you know, resistance to monetization and data or something, you know, but, but it's, if it's not actually being treated that way and it's not really, I don't know, like, is there a way to, to hold on to that? Um, my next, like, keyword slash question which seems like it has to do with all this and um and with the last thing that peter said about um you know publishing as as maybe finally arriving into a, a, a means or a site of connection um was just the word community um which is a word that gets you know overused to the point of meaning almost nothing quite a lot of the time um but seems like at the heart of these questions um you know peter sent a really lovely paragraph um, over email that I, that touches on these subjects. Um, and you said, quote, it seems to me that the answer to the what is to be done question is an activism that attempts to create non-corporate, non-monetized public spaces that are somehow networked online, but not modeled on or dependent upon neoliberal principles of value, efficiency, utility, necessity, and success success of any such yet to be created sphere of neo-utopian emancipative literary reading and writing will look very different from any publishing we have yet been able to create it seems to me it's the end of the quote um and in our conversation kind of in advance of this i just there was kind of emphasis on the like vividness and importance of just like intimate person to person connections, um, and reading and writing, feeling alive in those spaces. Um, and Eugene, I think you used the word like slow writing and quiet reading and talked about sort of the miracles hidden in books. You know, I liked that things were like, they were hard to perceive, right. They're slow, they're quiet, they're hidden away. You know, they can't, they're not there to just reveal themselves or be accessed. Um, and Ian, I, I'm going to do the worst thing possible to you, which is to quote a line of your poetry, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I hate it when people didn't quote um, to me. But I almost died the last time someone did that. But but in your in your beautiful book, forget that you know. I was just thinking of that opening poem, um, which has the address to the the more mortal material world, um, and the line "We've mostly forgotten a world can be spoken to," and I got really preoccupied with that and that idea. Maybe it pertains to community, um, but also pertains to like that idea that you can talk to the mortal material world <laughs> um, and it's there. Um, I don't know. Does that word community do anything for people? Does it, where, how does it feel yeah. alive to y'all? Yeah,
2: it, it came alive for me the other day because I, you know, when I wrote that paragraph, I sent it to an author. I've been working with Tom Ross, whose novel is going to be coming out, at Deep Vellum, and he's very much involved in. In his day job is to do with with um, financialization and but he's also a novelist and he was and an activist. Um, he's foremost, I think, he would define himself as a writer as an activist and um, uh, especially environmental activist. But he just took it for granted that the problem, or it seemed to me, he immediately saw that the problem was that the future would be networked, that it would be online, that it would be driven by um by the internet and that that was his so that the activist problem was how to demonetize the internet which is kind of unthinkable given its sources even though it's publicly created it's privately it was always privately enclosed and privately owned and now and so how would you republicize how would you re? how would you create a public an internet that was genuinely public in a in the national, anyway, in a geopolitical structure, where I mean, so that it, he, it, the idea of community would have to be include online um, communication between people who might never meet in person and stuff, but that community and the internet somehow had to be brought together, and that he took it for granted, and that it would not be, rec- he was he who really forced on me the recognition that it, it would, the future would not be the, the emancipated future might not be recognizable to us from where we are now. And that was kind of, for me, that was kind of freeing, and I just was very, very taken by that. So the community implies a kind of, you know, it's a rom- I think it comes from a romantic, a democratic community has romantic origins, and in, in, in you know, also literary romantic origins, and that, that, that those have to be that kind of romantic revolution maybe has to happen again in another form that we we don't know what it is yet. Anyway, that's that's just nonsense. But I just I just um, uh, was taken by that. I had been resisting that for a long time. The notion that the internet would be um, could be demonetized, or or made into a public good in some way, or that could be could become a commons rather than a, a continuing closure by encapsulate you know enclosure by by privatization and by monetization. So that it made me hopeful in a strange way. His, his comment made, it, made me hope that I, I, that there was hope and I didn't know what it was, but I could work for it and either. Despite that, I could, I could keep going in a hopeful mode about literature, not knowing where it would lead. And, and it would change the tradition. Whatever the future came, it would change the way we saw the history of it so that I didn't have to worry about betraying the history of something I didn't know what, what the future of was.
1: Sounds very, fr- I mean, it sounds very freeing to be unrecognizable. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> sounds very, I mean, I was thinking about that when we were talking about like what, um, you know, what the online experience, this internal colonization does to people. And it's like in a novelistic way, it's very familiar. I mean, we've all, we've seen many people publicly and semi publicly kind of completely change through <laughs> by be- being very online. Right. Um, and, Even as it's perfectly obvious, it still isn't quite, I don't know. It's like a disease. There's a name for or something (laughs) where you're like, this is really happening and I can see it happening to me. I can see it happening to other people, but there's not a name for it. So to have some kind of rupture from those recognizable, those patterns that are so, so recognizable, you don't want to name them because that would mean kind of admitting that all of that really was happening, you know?
4: To me, I mean, this is a sort of an unpleasant thought, but I, that's what I'm here for. Uh, I, when I think about that, I, I agree that it sounds very freeing. And then immediately to the question that arises in my mind is, so are we talking about the aftermath of some kind of violence? I mean, it, it's so hard to imagine the forces that would actually pry those internet spaces out of corporate control that is already almost military in its extent and its interaction with you know, states. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I wonder what what that what are we actually talking about when we talk about something that so radically reorganizes the internet in a liberatory way? Like what, what, what's you know, if that's midnight, what happens at eleven p.m.?
0: You know, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. And we see it's like today that video was circulating of just like room of people booing Elon Musk. I don't know if you all saw this moving around on the internet today. <laughs> like, um, and you're like, that's the sort of, you know like that's an energy. It's like when it's released in these tiny ruptures um, it feels very powerful, but if, you know, then what? It doesn't, it doesn't matter to, you know, like but it, like, I feel it too when I watch it I'm like, okay, okay, you know and but- then it vanishes, yeah. I get, I just feel like that
2: the suspension of that. there's already an amazing amount of violence going on, but it's kind of so that I, I'm, you know, uh, to suspend the question of, I, I think it's the right question, but to suspend it for a minute, it seems to me that that is what small presses are about is that I consider su- publishing success. If 30 people, if 30 people have read a book of mine and are delighted or moved by it, or or cre- it feels it has created that that, that it's the scale that the small scale of intense intimate reading with you know of a uh, communication among strangers that may not even know each other that out of that you know the 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 combination of of a lot of small non-monetized spaces could create a kind of movement for something it might be violence but it, there's always violence and that it's 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 um there will be a violence of of catastrophe. I, I feel like there's an imminent catastrophic violence within the next twenty years that will make the second war look bearable. And you know, so it, um, I mean, it, I feel like there's this looming violence through and over us about um, about everything. And anyway, so that but it's out of these in the small press world is modeling in a way this small community, small groups of readers. Who are reading the same text and may or may not know it, but it feels to me that that's that is a mon- non-monetized emergence of something that that might be something that's possible that to value that for its removal from from exploitation by by monetization might create like you were saying a spirit that that would move people that would that we don't know what the future would be but and it would it would I'm sure it would. It's going to occasion violence, but but violence is coming no matter what we do. In some fo- and it's and it's already here in, in a way, yeah, and that I we're already it. living in. It so yeah.
4: actually, in a very extreme, I mean, in the case of the literal infrastructure of the internet in a pretty extreme way between what it takes to mine the minerals that the things run on and what it takes to generate the electricity that the You know, it's there's a lot of very direct violence already happening
3: to to maintain that.
4: I'm not to say that it couldn't get worse, yeah.
3: but mm-hmm. I don't mean to disagree with the apocalypse because I think, it, I think it's quite. I think everything that you're saying is quite plausible. Um, but in terms of small presses, I think that I think that um, you know it's a shrinking island. I think that it, it is a shrinking island, but it's also there are. It may be, you can think about it also as a monastery in the dark ages. You can think yeah. about it. Uh, you can think about it um, as sanctuary. I don't know. I don't know what how to think about it. But I also, what I the one thing that I've come to realize is, um, it doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> I, I can just continue with my small press ways, and uh, and and try to create networks and try to push the writing that I like and I think is engaging and I think is serious. And um, you know, if if we're going down with the ship, we go down with the ship. If we if yeah. you know if there's this transformation. Via violence or utopia or whatever, then, um, then I hope it looks nice on the other side and we make it through. Um, but still, we're just you know we just kind of paddle in our own way, and uh, that's what the community is. It's kind of, um, it, I think it's kind of consolation, sanctuary, uh, protection, all of that, um, and it's it's uh, it it's it makes the days worthwhile. Yeah.
2: I loved in your email when you said something about. I'm sorry, I'm missing. But imagine justice. whether the the occupation of imagining justice or imagining kindness. I mean that 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 that's the work of of um, of daily life, inside and outside all I these might, things we're talking about. Yeah, well,
3: I might have said compassionate attention or loving yeah, attention, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Which I think is. Uh, um, it's it's an achievable goal you know it's it's not it's it's the the there are a lot of things there are a lot of things that it doesn't seem I have agency in any way to impact or change um, and maybe maybe I under, undersell either myself or or collective human will but it's uh, I I don't know who's writing the script and uh, um, the bad guys always seem to be winning so uh so we keep on doing our thing that's all i think about is to put it in silly reductive terms
1: i like sometimes maybe
3: they'll, the cavalry will come in at the end at the yes place.
1: well can i ask i want to ask then about the experimental because i feel like it's connected to all of that um connected to like peter's idea of um you know that's why we do it that's the yeah. place of hope <laughs> yeah. yeah imagining the un- the unrecognizable or imagining oneself as unrecognizable and that kind of like loving attention. And I think increasingly, um, and Eugene, I feel like this connects to what you said, even though I'm not sure I can build the connection, (laughs) um, super articulately myself, um, where more and more, I think like, I feel similarly about small presses. And I also think that more and more, their structure is the thing that matters, you know, like, um, that, like, I do want to put books out but it's like the books are an occasion for the, for relationship. um, And maybe not the other way, like the point of the relationship isn't to put out a book <laughs> The point of the book is to have the relationship. Um, and I don't think, you know, that doesn't feel like 100% true every time. And I also don't mean to make, you know, publishing sound, um, you know, more utopian than, you know, publishing is ridiculous and like fraud, etc. cetera. Um, you know, and, but, like more and more, I feel interested in, in a structure in which people could work together, right. They could collaborate on something and they could even like disagree a lot and be different from each other quite a lot, um, or not know what it was they were trying to create together. Um, but do that. And so I think that it used to be when I started out in publishing, the experimental was a word I was like, um, kind of beating my head against in terms of writing, right? Like being like, okay, like what is experimental fiction? And then more now I think like, well, what what is experimental like publishing or experimental like relating or what's a structure um, in which people can do things together that feels like it allows for experiment or allows for people to say a new idea or imagine something or have that um, some new form of compassion or vision or attention or whatever it may be. Um, so I guess I just am interested, that word shows up so much in around, in and around all of uh, our work. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I'm curious what it sort of means to you or how that word is your companion these days.
3: Um, I think it's a double question because the experimental in publishing, I don't know, in some strange way, I have, um, There are parts of the traditional small press community and book that I find um, almost experimental to try to keep or um, almost, um, I I find a value in it. I don't know how to put it, but I find a value in it that um, I I don't want to be a Luddite or a back-to-the-lander, but sometimes I think that the book is a a really valuable technology, has done something extraordinary. it's a meditative object. Um, and so in some ways, it's production and um, distribution and discussion and the culture that it was built upon it. Um, we will never have a mass culture built around the, the monograph in the same way that it once was. But I still like it as a like hard totem of a, of, of, a, of a mind and of a series of thoughts. Uh, I, I do like that, that, that technology or that package. So I don't know if I have great insights into what new mode would be. But as far as the experimental in fiction, I think of it as within the constraint of that form. And maybe it's, an, maybe it's a long narrative of, long text-based narrative of some other technology, but um, whatever in the constraint of the word novel, um, the creation of that form, uh, I like, the experimental, because it, it because that's why we do what we do. It, it's the it's the um, articulation of the poss- of the impossible or the not realized yet. It is the it is the seeing that which was hidden. It's the piercing the veil or the creation of form that uh, wasn't there before. And that I think that um, because that allows us to see the world differently, Perceive differently but that's that's where the hope is and that's where the value is because maybe somehow we either can perceive ourselves as we go through this these catastrophes um, or we um, that's my cat or we um, yeah I don't really like what I'm saying either Lou uh, okay I'm gonna turn I'm gonna uh, but the uh, the the experimental allows. Um, uh, I don't know, it's the art. It's why it's why I think that uh, this is valuable because we can see something we hadn't seen before about ourselves in the world. That's
4: I think to me, I think a lot about the word experimental, um and I have for better or worse, arrived at a kind of a very pat definition for myself, which is simply that I think something is experimental if uh, you you take an approach that is partly designed to ensure that you do not know what the result will be. Um, so in writing, that might be, you know, a methodological, you know, it might be process-oriented writing that, you know, literally you're creating not an idea for a final text, but an idea for a process for creating text to see what kind of text the process creates, or it might be less concretely analogous to a scientific experiment, but something that still, ain't. you know, I think, so somebody who, um, to me, is sort of a ghost in a lot of this conversation, in part because she just died three weeks ago, is the poet Bernadette Mayer, Um, an incredible, Poet, maybe the American second half of the twentieth century poet, um and somebody who who's writing and whose publishing practices totally challenged everything that that you would have as, assumed you were supposed to understand was how it worked, a very success, I mean, judging by the response to her work and to her death very successfully. Um, but what also, when I think about experimental publishing models, I think about, uh, the t- two presses that I associate with Peter, which are Dalkey Archive and Deep Film, um, which have both pioneered, you know, not not like unrecognizable as book publishing, but approaches to the, to the financial problem that always haunts uh, the publication of the kind of literature that gets generally grouped as difficult, whatever people mean by that, which is I think often the same thing people mean when they say experimental and sometimes something different, but just generally, not market savvy writing you know um through like foreign funding models and subscription models and through you know dalky archive for years maintained this publication context that i think that was sort of where the authors they were publishing would interview each other and write about each other and um they had another publication the review of contemporary fiction that was i think it's fair to say closer to a critical magazine like book form or whatever but context i think was really more aimed at I think somebody interrupt me, but um, I think it was more aimed at kind of, I have issues with the word community now that I have acquired through the past five years of its overuse in my opinion. But I think community is a decent word for it. It was trying to create or, you know, collegium in the sense that we used it in that left forum panel name, you know, that a group of people united by reading the same thing. Um. I also, another, press that i really am such a huge fan of exactly because to me they're experimental in the sense that they're doing something weird and who knows what it will produce uh, is 1080 press a small press based out of kingston new york that um i think everything they do is letterpress i don't know what kind of press they use but they you know they make it they set the type and then everything they print they distribute for free so you get on their mailing list and you i never know when it's coming but i look in the mail and oh there's a book from whoever um and I often really am interested in what they publish. But even if the particular book I'm reading doesn't grab me in that way that you hope a book will, I, there's something so thrilling to me about the idea that they're just absolutely not participating in uh, any any part of the conventional economy of bookmaking and selling that they are mm-hmm. able to step out of. Um, and I and it's it's a recent project, so. To me, it it feels experimental in that sense that I don't know what kind of reading it produces or what kind of community or whatever that, whatever substitute word, it doesn't give me hiccups, it produces, but um, it feels really heroic to me and exciting. And I don't, and I am, most publishing does not feel heroic to me. So it's really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, I was always struggling with that word experiment. And I think it was, You Know my first novel was published with Dalkey Archive Press, and it was John O'Brien. I think he was always fighting about what to call himself. And that I think it's there's a history of it. You know, the in the word novel is news, that it's tradition in the 18th century, it was the form by which the news of the present was brought to it. Was the form you used in order to bring the news, the new thing that was happening, the new history you were living into cognizance by or meditative you know <laughs> availability for thought so that the novel was supposed to be the vehicle of what was new and i think there's this history you know starting with new directions there was pound and so you know johnson was struggling with between the tension between is this what's contemporary literature and that since you know does that start then contemporary literature becomes a tradition with sort of new directions and laughlin and pound and and the modernists of the 20s and so forth are you know um um Anyway, so and I feel like experiment. The word experiment for me was a way was a comf- was a was a compromise of not using contemporary literature, not using um, radical literature, but using trying to signal that it was about bringing the news of the present in of the new that was new in the present into the forms that could be thought with through through literature. And so I think there's it is how do you bring how do you create a form that's adequate to the history you're living. And that, in a way, the novel always—that the novel that is interested in finding a form for that experience that is new, is novel, and is, is a novel experience. What form do you use? And I feel like, at least for my generation, it was, you know, Pynchon was the kind of, kind of the experimenter, the the person who took that the furthest. That is, or that at least, at least inspired me, or Marquez, or that you need a new. The novel's is, job is to provide a form adequate to the. The newness of the history that's happening and yeah and connect but of course paradoxically how to make it continuous with the past and how to connect it to the past and so that's that tension of um it's a word that stands in for whatever whatever the form the form of an unknown form like you were saying Ian I think you know precisely that it doesn't have, you don't know what the future is you don't know what form it's going to take but you need it's gonna in writing what is that creation of that new, vessel for experience look like and you can't know it in advance i mean that's what's exciting about i mean that's what i think that's why i write i think to to find out what what experience is and in the given in the form of or what form it will take and i don't know that until i until i write it or it it clarify it's clarifying it in some way
1: i love that definition too ian i think you like Thank you. Nailed it. Um, Cause I was thinking too, what I like is that I, is the sort of trust that them require, you know, like if you don't know, like what's going to happen, you have to trust some, you know, like you're in a state of trust, um, whether it's for the forum or for some kind of relationship or the text, uh, you know, for the, for whatever is happening, that's a like, you're in a state of trust. And to me, that feels like it's, um, you know, something to do with what we're being Called into, or what's hopeful about that, um, is not just that someone made something you couldn't immediately access or recognize or digest, but that you had to some trust their making um, in order to experience it. Um,
2: and you're trusting, G, trusting. I love that word. You're trusting readers to join you in it and inviting, and that that will, without knowing what the what the result will be of what the relationship will be, but you're trusting them to to be able to join them, to join you. or you, you join them. And it's the so way
1: like, a, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, it's the way experimental literature feels like, or uh, maybe it doesn't have to fit that word, but like, it feels like it honors the reader because it trusts you. Like it's not condescending to you, whereas so much of like literature, that's more formulaic. You're like, it doesn't trust you to do anything. Like, you know, like you are just there to receive a thing that you know how to receive. And it's, you know, um, so instead the idea that you might be trusted is very powerful, right? And is activating for the reader, I think. Um,
3: yeah. I never, I was just yeah. say. Um, oh, go ahead, you go. Eve. No, oh, okay, I was just gonna say, <laughs> I love this.
4: And this is why I, I, as we're saying this, I'm realizing the word that I wanna swap out community for is collaboration. You know, I think that on a deep level, what we're talking about is a model of um, being in language together that even if one person is talking and one person is listening, it implicitly, the stakes of it are that both people are participating on equal terms in the ability to join the fiction of meaning, you know?
3: Yeah. Um, I was gonna say about experimental, which I never minded as much as, uh, because I just, I thought of it, I thought it was a terrible word, but just kind of like innovative, avant-garde, You know, they're all kind of, they Equally mean bad. roughly the same category. And but it, but it struck me just this conversation is that experimental probably it it's has this kind of material scientific prejudice to it. Um, and similar, like the word the ulipo has a kind of contextual like workshop, kind of um, a potential potential uh, it's a potential literature too, uh, that is um, both things, I think, connote. Uh, there's this kind of scientific process that we're going through and we're gonna come up with a better novel eventually. Um, and the, the and I didn't mind it, cause I just, it's, they're all just signs pointing the same group of books mostly with, uh, and there's, but anyways, my main thing is, my main point I was thinking is that what I would really have always wanted is the way to say novel in, in kind of the same breath or way we talk about art. You know, it's just that gesture. It's the same kind of gesture and ambition it's not necessarily. I mean, there's the burdens of trying to conform to this storytelling mode. But it really, the these kinds of novels that we're talking about, these experimental, these innovative, these avant-garde novels, um, I think, are attempts at art, whatever that means. Uh, and it's it's different. you could call it experimental, but it, that kind of denotes you know, this kind of factory, this kind of, uh, you know, this this. Um, Within the context of the science, the world of the scientific, um, and it may be a different, uh, it may be a mode outside of that. That's all I thought about.
4: I love that you brought up lipo because I feel that that to me that's a very classic case of experimental in the concrete sense of you know de- designing the maze and then becoming the rat or whatever. Um, and I feel like it, it was in part an attempt. To to sort of say, like, okay, well, as people's lives are increasingly technologized, what what would a technologized literature look like? What would language obeying non-linguistic rules of patterning and organization do when we nevertheless, because language is so natural to us, we encounter it on such a deep level. what what would what would happen in us when we encounter that kind of language? You know, and now, of course, the, AIs are making the paintings and writing the paragraphs still pretty badly, but like, it seems clear that in, you know, in 10 years, if we haven't blown each other up, like they're going to be better at it. And it it, I mean, I feel like the way the question is getting asked now still has this kind of like, uh, lousiness about it. Like it still feels like, I don't know, a, a greasy, I want to say long Islandy question, but I don't know if that means anything outside of my head, but like, a, uh, A very suburban kind of question, but I feel like it's moving into the population centers, you know, as it becomes increasingly part of our lives. Like it's everything is going to be filtered through this, and we're going to have to become savvier interlocutors. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really in a deep, you know, as deeply as, as uh, maybe as deeply as mass literacy, which of course was unthinkable for almost all of human history and is now completely, we take it for granted in many languages and many uh, literacy cultures. So I don't know. So that's all. But I think that's interesting.
1: I had this like visceral reaction of arrogance, Ian. <laughs> I was like, well, the AI can't write, can't write all of your novels. You know what I mean? I was like, I was like, I think the AI could write some novels, but I don't think it can write these novels. <laughs> I was also like.
4: No, I think that's true. Well, I also. Think, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. Oh, no, so... I was thinking
1: how Eugene anticipated the question in his novel. <laughs> like,
4: yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I do think that it's interesting in terms of what you were saying, Eugene, about like it's just art, you know, um, like language is just a little different because as as innate to those of us who are are born and remain sighted um, is vision, and similarly, sound, you know, all these things. uh, Language is just different because it is the it is the literal mechanism by which we make the world, and it's the only tool we have for doing that. So I just feel that. because my first response to what you said Hillary was to be like we all think that but actually the thing can write a fugue in three seconds you know um but I do think language is a special case I do think you know setting aside is the language question of, a special like, case exactly because it's what the world is made of um because as deep as other things like our sense of sonic continuity or visual continuity go I think our sense of linguistic continuity goes deeper and more basically constitutes who we are and, and what we seem to find going on. If that makes sense.
3: It makes sense. I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't I believe it. I don't believe it anymore. I, used to, I mean, I used to think that, that, that we were, we are deep creatures of language, but there's a lot of information coming through us that's not linguistically based. I mean.
4: No, I agree, but, but is the, I guess to me, part of the question then becomes is the world the big W, you know, the world that not to the most arrogant thing in the universe, quote myself, but um in the in the the line that you mentioned, Hillary, you know, is, is the world that we can address, like, is that a different kind of existence than other things that we would agree probably exist? Like to me, it is. I think the world, which I think is made of language. More happens to us as a result of the fact that the world exists than happens to us, for example, as a result of the fact that music exists. As much as music is a powerful force that influences how we think, feel, and act, if that if that means anything.
2: I just I guess it's always hard from within language to t- say what language is. You're already always in that loop, and that, so how do you get out? You know, the, is there a place outside it? And I there is, but then anyway i I think linguistics is fascinating but i I mm-hmm. I think it's hard to uh, I don't know how to think outside of language I guess I mean I don't, I don't know how to get I don't know how you communicate outside of well' I, as soon as you say it of course you you can imagine it but i I but you're in you're already always inside language I guess.
4: well that but that's part of what I mean to say is that you know because it's so it so captures whatever kind of cognitive experience tries to escape it that to me is why it is different than
2: yeah.
4: other other exactly. forms of communication we can
2: imagine it's the first line but of the def- first line of offense and defense <laughs> yeah
4: first and last you know everything the rest is noise i mean it's it's right. i think it's doing the work
3: Five was, writers in a room would probably be <laughs> we're, we're not gonna disagree with you, but but you know, I I I think that there would yeah. be people that might Just the cat had a word too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Zach, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that word experimental and also about because you're reading book reviews all the time for the Cleveland Review of Books, and if there were things do people want that word now? You know what I mean? Do you see people using that word? Is that something that they're like when they want to talk about innovation in literature? How are they doing it, or what values around that do you see arising?
0: Uh, yeah, well, in in the review context in editing, we're constantly trying to get people to define that
1: word mm-hmm.
0: when they use it. You know, I think it it is often used to describe kind of like as has already been said here something that is. Difficult, or you know, doing something that doesn't like make sense or whatever, right? And then, um, using experimental as a descriptor is like it's like both, I guess it's both an easy way of encapsulating that, um, while also, but like it, you know, it also points to like a certain aesthetic or like maybe like a set of priorities that like isn't even always there, like attached to that word, you know, it's like, well, just because it's like weird. I don't know does that mean it's like experimental like is that is there that like intent or that like energy behind it so um I don't know it feels like very case by case I mean it's a word that I I like I simultaneously like at least personally (laughs) if I have like an agenda like I love (laughs) and like value and like want to like preserve as like stupid as that sounds like you know I ended uh I ended two classes today this semester, and like, um, you know, I tried to like give tried to like give some takeaways at the end of like a poetry workshop. And then this other class where at the art school that's just about like narrative. Um, and you know, I, 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 I used the word experimental and you know, basically to like, I think as a way of apologizing to my students for like some of the ways I don't have my shit together. You know, to be like well thanks for thanks for being here for the experiments, you know, all the times I threw out the syllabus, and you know we tried something weird um but like those were really cool, and uh, you know, this idea that i I kind of surprised myself when I said this. I didn't like go in with this idea, but maybe this was like <laughs> maybe this was experimental of me, I don't know, um to say that like whatever that experimentation is, um that sort of like space of uncertainty uh however you know it can be defined differently but at least like pedagogically or something like that feels to me like where learning happens like that feels to me where like discoveries are and surprises are um you know it's where like teaching occurs it's where like real I want to say like risks are taken but I don't know I don't know if that's like the right way to say it but it's just like where everything really is. I mean, you, you kind of all already said this. Um, I'm just like in a roundabout way trying to like explain the relationship where I guess it feels like both, I feel both like precious toward that word and like skeptical of it. You know, um, I myself, am like constantly using it to describe things either like functionally or in a more like editorial way. And then when I encounter other people using it, I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, but maybe that's good. I don't know. Maybe that's correct. Maybe I, um, the part of me feels like to, to have like, I don't know, to feel like an affinity or affection towards something that remains like kind of ongoingly, uh, slippery or like not totally stable. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I enjoy that. So I don't know if that totally answered your question, but (laughs) I guess it depends who you're talking to, maybe. Like it depends on the context, you know? Um, Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: My final question for everyone, and people touched on this already what's about hope? And what's about practices of hope or practicing hope? Things you're doing that feel like hope to you or that feel hopeful. And Zach, your um, discussion of teaching, you know, brought that up for me too, because, you know, that's, I think that can be a very hopeful space, you know, and again, not to romanticize it. Like, I don't think teaching is, you know, particularly looking at the labor context in which it takes place. Um, It is not utopian, but there's moments of um, about process, which is maybe what you're talking about um, in those moments with students where it's not about like an outcome exactly, or like, it's, it's like, we were in a, a kind of moment or process or moment together. Um, and you were all trusting each other, um, or I was trusting you or you were trusting me with something. And that in itself was kind of a, was felt hopeful. Um, and it felt like people were like wanting to go further with something or get engaged with something or, or be challenged or be present. Like people were mobilized and alive. <laughs> like, um, and that, you know, you know, my emphasis of the evening is, looking at those moments of, of um, process and, and to return to Ian's word collaboration, um, rather than feeling like, okay, experimental literature is a way of describing like an aesthetic or, um, a kind of way a novel looks or something like that, but, but <laughs> rather like a process, whether it's a composition or a process, a, a type of relationship, it asks you as the reader into, you know, and those things feel feel very hopeful to me. And even things like, you know, the Cleveland review of books feels hopeful to me as a place where people like respond to books, which you're like, I don't know why anyone would bother doing that. (laughs) Like what's the, you know, um, like, I can't believe anyone writes a book review. Uh, that's amazing. (laughs) Um, so I think those moments of, of response and listening where you're like, okay, like someone said something and I don't know what to say yet, but I'm going to try to say, you know, I'm going to be in that trying, um, but did you say like an affinity for something that's still slipping away or is not stable? um those those feel like the hopeful moments to me. Any thoughts on on hope and how we do it <laughs> what it looks like?
2: I've been very influenced by this um, book by Lee Zimmerman about um, uh, climate change and the um and a culture of denial and that he talks about there's a kind of coercion of optimism that there's needs to be, everything has to have a hopeful ending. And for me, he was, you know, he led me to the idea really of, um, you know, that that denial, um, when hope becomes a part of denial, it's lethal, but there is a hope. Despair is more productive in a way of, in a paradoxically is more productive of of kind of honesty and trust and truth and that um in certain circumstances and that hope can come out of that that for me I, it just the permission to live through despair if that's what you need to do and that you're going to do it literature is one way of living through that or exploring it or not turning away from it not it, that that denial is a dead world and despair is a still living world and that out of the living through that, whatever, however, whether it's apocalypse or catastrophe or, you know, um, like, I, I guess, I think, um, Eugene, you were embodying my sense very well. We don't know what's at the end of it. It may be catastrophe, but that um, uh, not succumbing to kind of an American coercion of optimism or of of kind of automatic hope in order to, you um, Please the audience or order to get on that 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 that's when it's used as a form of denial of the truth of the world we're really of the of the history we're really living you know that that that's there's a kind of joy in letting go of that coercion of of hope and of of obligatory hope and finding hope in the in the experimental processes of 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 overcoming denial and going living with the with the construction of hope not with its um coercion that hope especially i think in an american context there's this triumphalism there's this, always this compulsive narrativization of a kind of of a exceptional triumphalism even in the weirdest circumstances and i think that the culture you know to stop that culture is something that that literature can do and 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 i think in our own ways we're all trying to do that in a way that and and find hope in the in the refusal of denial and that that that's a joyful place can be a very
3: joyful place. I think there's a joy that can be found in like the triage in the moments that the catastrophe is happening. Right. You know, like we're uh, like you can turn to yourself and go, am I OK right now? Is, is it OK? And you it, it's not bad. It's OK. It, it, there, and then there's disaster happening like around the corner to people you love. And, and that's not good, But but, but you can kind of. But but and I, it's I don't mean a relativism. I just mean like you can um, the hope stems from taking a breath and 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 you know being okay with where you are you know at this moment. And I also think what Peter was alluding to a little bit you know variations on hope and despair. I think um, there is a wisdom in the idea of you know not creating the narrative about the future. That moves towards triumph or um, despair. And there is confronting each day as it comes, um, doing one's best or, you know trying to trying to to help help out, <laughs> trying to help the people you love and trying to enjoy your own time uh, on this earth and uh, articulate those hopes and dreams you wish to articulate. And uh, you move on while the the headlines go off, in your mind all the time. Um, and there's a, there may be a privilege to it, but I think it happens almost on every level of existence. You, you have to do that in the face of um, either, whatever the big story is, you, you have your moment in your day. So that's how I think of that idea of hope or despair or how to face the moment.
4: Yeah, I love what everybody just said. Uh, I think for me, I hope is also a word that I would rather replace with collaboration. You know, I think that there there is no hope, clearly. I mean, it's ludicrous to talk about hope. Like we just shut the country down for two and a half years for a major health crisis and learned nothing, changed nothing, made nothing more viable for anybody, almost. Uh, ludicrous, insane. But I do think yeah that we you know we are in whatever networks we're in and we have before us whatever work we have and it makes sense to do it and it makes you know pleasure is important and getting through is important and time happens no matter what you know so I I, but I so yeah I'm not a fan of the word hope because I just seems I as Peter says it seems coercive to me but um but I do think life is worth living you know like I, I think that uh we We find um, what there is to do, and it makes sense to try to do it the best we can.